Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. Hello, I'm David Taverner, and it's great to welcome Mike Beaumont, who's written the notes throughout the Christian Basics Bible, the edition which is specially designed for those new to Christianity or wanting to find out more. And in this episode, we're looking at the life of Joshua, whose story, maybe not surprisingly, is told mainly in the book of Joshua. Mike, hello again. Hello, good to be here again. Could you just remind us of, of where we are in the story? Where does Joshua fit in? quick recap is when God starts his plan of salvation, he calls a man called Abraham, who has a son called Isaac, who has a son called Jacob, who has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them is Joseph, who ends up in Egypt, ups and downs, brings his family to Egypt, growing, developing family, but in the wrong place. God had said big family in Canaan. God rescues them through this man, Moses, we looked at in a previous episode and leads his people, this growing, huge people that had developed by this point, out of their slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness, through Sinai, takes them south to Mount Sinai, where he gives them the law, and they will continue their journey towards the promised land. And it's in that journey through Sinai that our friend Joshua first makes his appearance. What's Joshua's relationship with Moses? He's his buddy and his assistant. I do put buddy in because they do seem to have been really good friends as well. We don't know a lot about him. He's a young man who Moses spots something in while he's still pretty young. And he takes him alongside him and he becomes his assistant is the word that's often used in the Bible. So actually the first place we find him is not in the book named after him, Joshua, but we find him in Exodus, and it's actually in Exodus chapter 24 when Moses comes down from the mountain. By the way, I probably should say that Moses goes up and down the mountain more than once. We often think he goes up, gets the law, and comes down. Exodus shows us he went up and down at least seven times mm. and got stuff from God, like in portions, as it were. And in 24... He's come down with the Ten Commandments and he's made the covenant with Israel and with God by sprinkling the blood on them. And it's in 24 where for the first time we come across Joshua and it simply says Moses and his assistant Joshua set out and Moses climbed up the mountain. So it looks like Joshua went with him a certain part of the way and then only Moses was allowed to go on further. So this guy is very, very much in the heart of things. We find him a little later in Exodus in chapter 33 at that tabernacle we spoke about in a previous episode, that tent of meeting where the Ark of the Covenant was. And in chapter 33, we find that Joshua just loves to stay by the tabernacle. It's almost a picture of him loving the presence of God. He just loves to be there. And even when Moses comes out of it with his face radiant and everything else and goes back to the camp, Joshua just keeps hanging around the tabernacle. It's like he wants more of God. So we've already got something of a picture of this guy, faithful friend. Moses has seen something in him and he, he just longs for 
that presence of God. And Moses would have sort of chosen him then to be his assistant? Yeah, seems so. As simple as that. He Did God point him out specifically? Did he spot something in him? We simply aren't told. But there's clearly a very, very close relationship between the two. And Moses spends a lot of time preparing Joshua and also by the end of the wilderness books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, very clearly marking out to Israel that Joshua is the man that God has appointed, not that he is appointed, but that God has appointed. And he'll have some great adventures on the way through that wilderness as well. So as Joshua was working alongside and living alongside Moses, he clearly witnessed some amazing things and obviously understood the purpose of the journey of the Israelites towards the promised land. Now, did Moses fulfill that plan of God? Moses himself would never get to the promised land. But you touched on a really important thing. I'm sure over these years, he would have spoken again and again to Joshua as part of his training about the purposes of God. This is not just a story of a former bunch of slaves who are fleeing to go and find a new home. This is the story of the people of God, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who have encountered Yahweh, the living God, and who've been made his people and given his law and his covenant and his sacrifices to go back to the promised land that God had promised to Abraham and the other patriarchs long before. And I'm sure many, many times Moses would have drummed that into him again and again. And you said that he'd been alongside Moses. He would have heard so much. Do you know what? He would have seen so much as well. I often think when we get to Joshua, we see lots of miraculous stuff happening. Where did Joshua learn the confidence for that? I think he learned it by working alongside Moses, seeing this man of God reaching out to God, crying out for, for manna and quail and water, calling out to God. And he'd seen miracle after miracle. And he'd already proved himself as, as a man of faith. Um, we find that in the book of Numbers, he's one of the guys sent to spy out the promised land. And they send out a number of spies to the promised land and to see what it's like. They all come back with this great big tree branch full of grapes. And they all come back and say, it's fantastic. There's so much good stuff there. This is a brilliant land. And then the word that always spoils everything. But. It's a big word. That big word, but. But there are giants in the land. There are problems ahead. And Joshua and Caleb are the only two who say, come on, guys, God's with us. Where did he get that from? Moses, I'm sure. God's with us. We can surely do it. And they stir them up. And all the people said, you know what? We're not sure we can do this. And sadly, all the older people will end up dying in the desert. And it's only the new, younger generation who will actually get to go in the promised land. Yes, as you said, not with Moses, but with Joshua. So Joshua's actually been into the promised land. He's seen it for himself. He's seen it for himself. I mean, isn't that an exciting word to say? When you have seen something for yourself, you get captivated. You are able to communicate it with passion to other people. If you've seen God answer prayer, you're the best person to say, come on, guys, we're going to go and pray. He'd seen it for himself. And that's what I think empassioned him. A mixture of the history that Moses had told him, 
how the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was leading them. And the fact that he'd seen it just fired up this young man to go and serve God and lead God's people. And, and so does he become a sort of military leader then? Is that the kind of person Joshua becomes? He becomes that, though he clearly didn't start out like that. I mean, he clearly started out as an assistant, um, a bag carrier, you know, there alongside Moses, doing whatever needed doing. But the picture we get through these books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, of, of a guy who's starting to take growing responsibility, who is learning alongside Moses. But of course, the minute they've crossed the River Jordan, it's now a time, yeah, for leading God's people into the battles and the warfare that will be needed to take what God has promised them. Because they're moving into a, a land that's already occupied, occupied yes, territory. occupied by not a nation. It's important we remember they weren't a nation at this time. They were a whole bunch of people groups, often centred around cities, the ites. They're sometimes summarised as Canaanites because they lived in Canaan. Sometimes they're listed more, Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and so on. Sometimes they're referred to as the, the Seven Nations because seven was a round number, perfect number in Judaism. And these are the people who've lived in Canaan for a long time. Patriarchs have lived among them, remember, in their past. They've borne witness to the one true living God, and yet for generations they have rejected it. In fact, one of the reasons the Bible tells us that God couldn't give this land to his people immediately was because of the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached full measure. It's almost like saying, because I've not yet given them enough time to prove how truly sinful they are. But when I have given them enough time and they still haven't repented and turned to me, then the time will come. So we shouldn't just think of this as an invasion, a military bloodbrath, a genocide, all words that I've heard used. This is God, sadly, with heavy heart, no doubt, bringing about his judgment on a people who for generations have rejected him and his truth. So Joshua is leading the people. They're, they're on the, the verge of the promised land. There's obviously got to be some strategy involved from Joshua's point of view. Yes, they have, particularly because Moses is no longer with them. You know I mean, for years, he's looked to Moses for strategy. Moses was the guy with the hotline to God. Suddenly he's not there. Why? Because God said, I can't have you lead the people into the promised land angry. There'd been an occasion in the wilderness when they'd needed water. And God had said to Moses, strike the rock and water will come out. And he did. And later on, they came grumbling again for water. And Moses got mad and he said, water, I'll give you water. And he starts striking this rock again. Why? Because God had said that last time. Mm -hmm. But this time God said, I told you to speak the rock not strike it and i think he struck it in anger and it's like god says i cannot have angry people leading my people it sounds minor but it's pretty important to god because the quality of his leaders the character of his leaders is so important we live in a generation in the west when the character of leaders political leaders particularly seems to make not one jot of difference it matters to god because you lead what you are and god says i can't have you leading you you're an angry man i can't have an angry man leading my people and so moses climbs up mount nebo within sight of the promised land 
and he sees it from a distance. And God takes him. Body was never found, taken up to heaven with God. So he got his reward. He didn't lose it, but he wasn't allowed to complete it. And it's now Joshua will have to hear God for the strategy, as you put it, to find a way into this promised land. And the biggest strategy he would need, of course, is the one that was right in front of them. As they come up out of the desert, they go to the east of the River Jordan. Why to the east? Because that's where the other major highway ran in those days, the King's Highway, through places like Moab and Edom, where they get resisted. But eventually they get opposite the Promised Land, opposite Jericho, just one small problem, the river. River Jordan, I was going to say, yes, yes. The River Jordan. And while the river had been fordable opposite Jericho because there was a road across the country at that point. So there was a ford. And we read in the early chapters of Joshua that when those, he sent spies out, you know, where had he learned that from? Obviously, He'd been a spy. He'd been a spy. He knew what to do. And so he sends spies out across the river to look, to spy out Jericho, which is the first city they're going to have to take. And Read about that story in chapter two and how Rahab, this woman, protects them. And then they come back. So they forwarded across. Here's the interesting thing. By the time Israel is ready to cross themselves, early the next morning, Joshua and all the Israelites left and arrived at the bank of the River Jordan, chapter three says, where they banked. Guess what? The river is now in flood. Overnight, it's turned to flood. We know this happens. It's the melting snows from way up north on Mount Hermon cause them to melt at such a pace that just at this moment when they come, the river is now in flood. Now, how on earth are we going to get across a flooded, raging torrent of a river? And there's a lot of people we're talking about that need to cross. A lot of people. Um, as we said in a, a previous episode, scholars aren't 100% agreed on how many. At the very, very minimum, it was like a quarter to a half a million. Some think it could have been as big as two, two and a half million. Wow. But we're talking a lot of people hmm. that you've got to get across. How on earth are you going to do it? You know, no boats around. And even if they were, they'd get washed away. And and so God comes up with this plan. Joshua said, God, what are we going to do? And God said, it's dead easy. What we're going to do is tomorrow, the priests are going to pick up the Ark of the Covenant They're going to go ahead of you. And the moment their footsteps in the water, the Jordan will stop flowing and you'll all walk across on dry land. I've often wondered what he thought when he heard God say that. And even more, what did he say when he went back to all the leaders and they all said, "Okay, what did God say? How are we going to do this? Um, He said we're going to send the priests in with the Ark of the Covenant and it's going to dry up. But you know what? Read chapter three. That's exactly what happens. At the very moment they put their foot into the river, the river dries up. Now, what had happened? Actually, the Hebrew text tells us it said it piled up. The river piled up upstream at a place called Adam. Interestingly enough, this happened in the early uh, 1900s. There was a landslide near Adam. It fell, it blocked the river, and it dried up. And this is the same Joshua, of course, who being the assistant to Moses, had crossed the Red Sea. Yeah, he'd seen God do this. This is the importance of people who've seen God do stuff, communicating it, 
to the next generation because the rest of them hadn't. And it's one thing for him to say, I can do it, but he must have told that story in faith. So they do it. God does it. And it says the water piled up, looked like it was a rock slide. You see, God, God is the God of creation. You know, I'm not taking the miraculous away. I'm just saying how probably God did it. According to the Hebrew text, the water piled up. They all march across and then the waters start to flow. But here's the exciting thing for me. You see, the Jordan Joshua knew was not just a physical barrier. It was a spiritual barrier. All the ites who lived in the land worshipped various forms of the gods Baal and Asherah names that come up often in the Old Testament. And Baal was a fertility god. That meant they thought he was the god of the weather. Now, you needed a weather god. Remember, no great river like in uh, Mesopotamia and Egypt. Mm. You need the gods to send the rain. And so the Canaanites believed in Baal and the other fertility gods who sent forth the rain, controlled the weather, controlled the river. And to do that, there were some horrific things. Their worship included prostitution, religious prostitution at their shrines, because it was thought, putting it bluntly, if you had sex with the temple prostitute, that somehow stimulated the gods to have sex in heaven and their fertility would flow down to the earth. So for worldly people, this was quite an attractive religion. So this was not just a battle about, can we cross a river? Can God stop water flowing? This was about who controls the water. And I imagine that when that next day the river flooded, the Canaanites must have been standing there looking across the river to the Israelites thinking, yeah, you pathetic desert people. Your desert God could not overcome our gods here. Look what our gods have done. They have flooded the river. And the moment that river stopped flowing, I think there was panic and they turned back to Jericho and locked themselves up tightly while God's people crossed, proclaiming the Lord, Yahweh is God, not Baal. And they built a little pile of stones, 12 stones. Why 12? One for each tribe right. so that people in future would never, ever forget what God had done for them. So the Canaanites, at their words, the Israelites headed towards Jericho. And I've got a feeling that we might have heard of the Battle of Jericho. Yeah, there was a song, remember, Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. Yeah. Jericho is an amazing place. If you go and visit it, you can still see to this day the ruins of the old towers. They are meters thick. This was a major, major fortification built to protect that road that ran across country between the way of the sea by the Mediterranean and the King's Highway to the east of the Jordan. So this was like a gateway fortress. And that's why it was so strong. And once again, Joshua has to go to God and say, God, what on earth are we going to do? There's no way. You know, we're not soldiers. We've just been desert shepherds for 40 years. How are we going to do this? And when get told him again, I imagine him thinking, oh, my goodness, I've got to go and say something else stupid. And I think they must have thought like that at times. <laughs> Because God's plan for Jericho coming is not an army, but a choir. <laughs> and he says, send the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant and send trumpeters and, and let them march around the city, blowing their trumpets and singing and shouting. And do you know what? I think in our terms, it must have been quite powerful psychological warfare. Mm -hmm. 
until on the last day, the seventh day, they march round it in absolute silence. You know, those folk inside Jericho must have been wondering what on earth was going to happen mm. at that point. And what happens is eventually Joshua gives the command, they blow the trumpet, and the walls collapse. And the Israelites can march straight in and take that city. And the fortress of Jericho and the people of Jericho are no more. Perhaps the song should be renamed because it wasn't Joshua that fought the Battle of Jericho, was it? Do you know what? That's a good point, isn't it? We must go back and maybe we could earn some money rewriting the song. Yeah, because it wasn't him, was it? Really, it was it was those priests and those singers and those trumpeters who went ahead. Above all, of course, it was the living God who fought the Battle of Jericho. So when they took that city, that significant city, was that the beginning of conquering the land, if you like? It was. This was really a beachhead in modern terms. And they would now have to push along that road, which pretty much divided the land into two. And they would then turn north, take places to the north, take places to the south. But two things I should probably say on that. It wasn't all straightforward. These were tough years, which says a lot about Joshua's leadership skills. They, they were not easy. In fact, the very next city that they got to turned out to be completely disastrous. In Joshua chapter 7, we read about the city of Ai. And the Israelites got a bit cocky. Good job God's people today never get like that, isn't it? <laughs> they got a bit cocky. Hey, look, we took Jericho easily. We can easily do this. Let's just send a few people to the city. It's nowhere near as strong as Jericho. But what they find is 3,000 people get killed. Their own people? Their own people. And suddenly they're retreating back to their base camp near the River Jordan. And they're saying, what on earth has gone wrong? And it comes to Joshua to have to cry out to God and say, God, what's gone wrong here? I mean, imagine the feelings. You're just at the start of a big adventure. You've had a great success and then immediately incredible reversal. I mean, anyone who's done any work for God will know that success is normally followed by some kickback. And there was certainly that here. And so in chapter seven, we find Joshua crying out to God saying, God, why on earth did you ever bring us across the river Jordan? You know, if this is all that lies ahead, we'd have been better to stay the other side. And then he prays this interesting thing. He says, but Lord, you know, when the Canaanites and all the otherites hear about this defeat, they'll surround us and wipe our name off the face of the earth. Then listen to this bit, David. And then what will happen to the honour of your great name? Oh, I love that. <laughs> he turns it round to me. God, this is not about me. This is not about us. This is about you. This is about your honour. And God, I think God likes that. He responds and he says, get up. Why are you lying on your face like this? I'll tell you why you're defeated. There's sin in Israel's camp. I told you that when you took Jericho, nobody was to take everything, anything Everything was either to be destroyed or it was to be de dedicated to me. And it was to be put there into the shrine and the tabernacle. And there's someone in your midst who stole something. This must have been pretty devastating mm. for Joshua. Has to go back 
goes to the leaders, says, right, command the people, purify themselves tomorrow. God's going to show us who this is. And uh, little by little, he calls the leaders of all the tribes and the representatives of the clans and the families within the tribe. So mm -hmm. a tribe was made up of clans, a clan was made up of families. And little by little, God points out to them, no, it's not that tribe. It's not that. It's from this tribe. It's from this clan. It's from this family. So it's not confession time from the people. Ah. They have to be shown who it is. This is God's serious moment. You know, God gives us plenty of chance to repent. But there are times when sometimes God just takes the lead and he takes the action. And that's what happens here. And he singles out this guy called Achan. And... Joshua then has to say to Achan, tell me the truth. Is this what you did? What what did you do? Don't hide it from me. And he says, yeah, it's true. He said, when we went to Jericho, I, you know, among the plunder, I saw a beautiful Babylonian robe. I saw 200 silver coins, a, a bar of gold weighing more than a pound. And listen to this. I wanted them so much, I took them. One bad apple. One bad apple led to 3,000 people losing their lives and so judgment comes pretty quick joshua sends his men they go and find it where is it it's underneath the tent why because that's the only place there is to put it and he's obviously dug a hole in the ground patted it down perhaps put a rug over it who knows and they bring back this stuff and they say is this what you did and he said i did and here's the really really sad thing this is where deceitfulness as well as disobedience can lead us, because it's not just Achan, but his whole family is then taken and stoned to death. Now, we might think, hang on, his family, that seems very unfair, doesn't it? Well, I think there are two things going on here. Have you ever tried to dig a hole and then cover it up hmm. and make it look like it's not there? It's impossible. Hmm. Seems highly likely, therefore, that some of his family were aware of what he'd done and had kept their mouth zipped. But this also brings home to us, you know, our sin often has consequences on other people. I think we even see it in culture today. You know, bad choices that parents make often lead to their kids' suffering. Is it their fault? No. But sometimes the sins of the fathers do get visited on the children to the third and fourth generation. Thankfully, in Jesus, the New Testament tells us it doesn't have to be like that anymore. And only then, when this sin is dealt with, can they go back, take AI, and this time there is victory. And this time, listen to this, God says, you can take whatever you like. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just been that bit too greedy, bit too soon, hadn't mm -hmm. he? Stepped over the mark a bit too far. And then the land in time, the Canaan, the land of Canaan is, is, is taken over, is it? Yes. It's conquered and divided. One of the next things they do is they renew the covenant because that's really important to Joshua. It says a lot about his character. Before he goes any further in Joshua chapter 8, he renews the covenant. It's not making a new covenant. It's saying, yes, that covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, I renew, we renew it together. We are your people, God. And then the rest of the book is basically how they first of all spread north and start to conquer some of the northern towns, spread south. It looks like they didn't inhabit many of the towns they conquered. It looks like they conquered the domineering influence because these really weren't town dwellers. 
They were nomads. They seemed mm. to live out. And while some people were killed and some fled, some were left. And one of the things we'll discover in the next book we'll come to, Judges, is that it was leaving pockets of resistance, sadly with their gods, that would lead Israel away and entice them to this highly sensualized, sexualized religion of Baal worship. So Joshua did a great job, but like all the characters we've seen so far in our series, he wasn't perfect. He was wonderful, but he did make mistakes. And some of this not doing what God says, not leaving the ites in the land so that they could entice you afterwards was perhaps one of his biggest failures. And how did Joshua's life come to an end? Well, he lived a good old life. Interestingly, not as long as some of the patriarchs, you know, Abraham 175, Isaac 185. Um, this poor guy only made it to a mere 110. <laughs> you can find that in the last chapter of Joshua, Joshua 24. Uh, but I love this bit. It says, after this, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land he had been allocated. This one says, another version says, they buried him in the land of his inheritance. And what a great thing to think that you've got to the end of your life, you've claimed your inheritance, and they bury you in that inheritance. In other words, to be able to look back and say, God, I may not have been perfect and I may have made some mistakes. But I think I can honestly say, I did what you gave me to do. What a blessing that would be. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.